Awesome. Okay. So, today we're going to be reading Leviticus. As we have been for the last couple of days. Did anybody volunteer to read Leviticus 7 and 8? Uh, I volunteered. Oh, awesome. Cool. Right. So, whenever you're ready, man, take it away. All right. Um, I'm going to uh, stop between 7 and 8. I want to go over some stuff because 8's like a whole other concept. Okay. So just seven for now. All right. No problem. A reading from the book of Leviticus, chapter seven. Repayment offerings. The following are the regulations for the repayment offerings, which are very holy. The animal for this offering is to be killed on the north side of the altar, where the animals for the burnt offerings are killed, and its blood is to be thrown against all four sides of the altar. All of its fat shall be removed and offered on the altar, the fat tail, the fat covering the internal organs, the kidneys and the fat on them, and the best part of the liver. The priest shall burn all the fat on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a repayment offering. Any male of the priestly families may eat it, but it must be eaten in a holy place because it is very holy. There is one regulation that applies to both the sin offering and the repayment offering. The meat belongs to the priest who offers the sacrifice. The skin of an animal offered as a burnt offering belongs to the priest who offers the sacrifice. Every grain offering that has been baked in an oven or prepared in a pan or on a griddle belongs to the priest who has offered it to God. But all uncooked grain offerings, whether mixed with oil or dry, belong to all the Aaronite priests and must be shared equally among them. Fellowship Offerings The following are the regulations for the fellowship offerings presented to the Lord. If you make this offering as a thanksgiving offering to God, you shall present, together with the animal to be sacrificed, an offering of bread made without yeast, either thick loaves made of flour mixed with olive oil or thin cakes brushed with olive oil or cakes made of flour mixed with olive oil. In, in addition, you shall offer loaves of bread baked with yeast. You shall present one part of each kind of bread as a special contribution to the Lord. It belongs to the priest who takes the blood of the animal and throws it against the altar. The flesh of the animal must be eaten on the day of, it, of its sacrifice. None of it may be left until the next morning. If you bring a fellowship offering as a fulfillment of a vow or as your own free will offering, not all of it has to be eaten on the day it is offered, but any that is left over may be eaten on the following day. Any meat that still remains on the third day must be burned. If any of it is eaten on the third day, God will not accept your offering. The, the offering will not be counted to your credit, but will be considered unclean and whoever eats it will suffer the consequences. If the meat comes into contact with anything ritually unclean, it must not be eaten, but must be burned. Any of you that are ritually clean may eat the meat, but if any of you who are not clean eat it, you shall no longer be considered one of God's people. Also, if you eat the meat of this offering after you have touched anything ritually unclean, whether from a person or an animal, you shall no longer be considered one of God's people. The Lord gave 
Moses the following regulations for the people of Israel. No fat of cattle, sheep, or goats shall be eaten. The fat of an animal that has died a natural death or has been killed by a wild animal must not be eaten, but it may be used for any other purpose. Anyone who eats the fat of an animal that may be offered as a food offering to the Lord will no longer be considered one of God's people. No matter where the Israelites live, they must never use the blood of birds or animals for food. Anyone who breaks this law will no longer be considered one of God's people. The Lord gave Moses the following regulations for the people of Israel. When any of you offer a fellowship offering, you must bring part of it as a special gift to the Lord, bringing it with your own hands as a food offering. You shall bring the fat of the animal with its breast and present it as a special gift to the Lord. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall belong to the priest. The right hind leg of the animal shall be given as a special contribution to the priest who offers the blood and the fat of the fellowship offering. The breast of the animal is a special gift, and the right hind leg is a special contribution that the Lord has taken from the people of Israel and given to the priests. This is what the people of Israel must give to the priests for all time to come. This is the part of the food offered to the Lord that was given to Aaron and his sons on the day they were ordained as priests. On that day, the Lord commanded the people of Israel to give them this part of the offering. It is a regulation that the people of Israel must obey for all time to come. These then, are the regulations for the burnt offerings the grain offerings, the sin offerings, the repayment offerings, the ordination offerings, and the fellowship offerings. There are on, there on Mount Sinai in the desert, the Lord gave these commands to Moses on the day he told the people of Israel to make their offerings. Awesome. Thank you for reading. Um, okay, so I want to start by prefacing real quick that you know the book of leviticus can be broken up in several parts so the first seven chapters are going to discuss the sacrifices as we've read and i'm going to reiterate what the different sacrifices were uh what they meant different symbolisms within each one um and then what we're going to get into chapter eight is the beginning of the priesthood it's going to be the ordination of the priests um again with the sin of the of the golden calf incense it was limited to only the Levitical tribe um so only the levitical priests will be present so between chapters eight and nine or eight and ten it's going to be about the priesthood the next section is going to be 11 through 15 this is important because it helps us understand the book of hebrews in a new light the book of hebrews is so jewish and the jewish language used in the book of hebrews comes straight from um the cleanliness code so you'll see um, this big discourse, and we've already seen some of it within this very chapter of, um, you know, being holy and clean and unclean, consecrated, um, profane, common. These words are being thrown around. So well, what is the difference between holy and common? You know, clean versus unclean. Now, all these different things. What does it mean, essentially? Um, and so we will get into that later. But just uh, let that float around in your mind for now the importance of the words being used here. 
And so essentially there are five main kinds of sacrifices. Um, they can be grouped into, into two groups. One, it's the burnt offering, the cereal offering, the peace offering are sacrifices that express communion with God. Okay, so these are, you know, loving sacrifices. This is, this is what that is. And so the other two, the sin offering and the guilt offering, are to restore communion with God. So think of that. They were cut off, so they got to restore the communion. Think of how we have to go to confession. You know, when we commit a mortal sin, we're cut off. We got to restore the communion. And it is sacrificial, you know, to have to sort of humble yourself to go talk to a priest, tell him your, your deepest sins. So that is a sacrifice that you make. And so in a similar sense, um, the Israelites had this sacrifice that was entailed there. Um, and so those, those are two distinctions there. So the first one was the burnt offering. Uh, essentially, it, it could be called the, the Holocaust offering, meaning that it was burnt. And so the smoke would ascend and it goes up and back in, back to God. You know, it's a burnt whole offering, a whole burnt offering. Um, nothing of the burnt offering is eaten. Everything goes up to God. That's the importance of it. It's to signify, um, or the, the animal is supposed to symbolize the offender. Um, and so the, the person places his hands on the head of the animal, thereby establishing a transferal of identity or symbolic representation. This is a direct figure. These sacrifices are direct figures of what Christ does. You know, he, he takes the, the, the punishment, you know, uh, he's so our representative there on the cross. And so with that, it's the, his atoning sacrifice that is offered up to God in that way. Um, and so that's pretty much it for the burnt offering. The second one is the grain offering um, and, or cereal offering. Uh, essentially, it, it's an unbloody sacrifice consisting of some form of grain, whether baked as a cake or not. Um, the Hebrew name means gift or tribute to the Lord. And once again, it expresses communion between the offender and God in a form of a kind of meal. Um, so only a portion of the cereal offering was burnt on the altar. The rest was cons consumed by the priests. And that shows that, that sort of connection there, that meal that they're having amongst each other. You know, God's receiving the burnt offering and the, the priests eat the rest. And then you have the peace offerings. Um, this stems from the idea of, you know, wholeness. This signifies the state of communion between God and the worshiper. You see, the fat of the animal is considered a delicacy and was offered to God. But the priest and the people ate the rest of the animal in a celebratory feast together with the grain, offering, the grain offerings that accompanied it. And so because the peace offering was a communal meal with God and his servants, the priests, it also followed any other offerings, so burnt, sin, or guilt. While the sin or guilt offerings serve to restore communion or peace with God, the peace offering both recognizes and celebrates it. So it's like a sacrifice of joy and thanksgiving. Um, and again, they usually follow the sin and the guilt offering. So the sin offering, um, the Hebrew name of this sacrifice is simply the word for sin. Uh, and hence, the purpose of the sacrifice is to restore communion with God through the forgiveness of sins. It literally, in a sense, de-sins or purifies a person or object. In this way, the sin offering the worshiper 
and sometimes also the sanctuary or other objects from ritual uncleanliness. Again, there's this idea of uncleanliness. Um, and you're going to see ritual uncleanliness. You're going to see cleanliness being holy, uh, being profaned, different ideas here. And so this can be in, in a way to, to purify the, the people by getting rid of their sins or to also purify um, the objects, uh, the holy objects. And so the last one is the guilt offering. Um, it also serves to restore communion with God. Um, it's debated exactly what the difference between the sin and the guilt offering is. The most likely explanation is that while the sin offering restores the relationship with God and the offerer through forgiveness, the guilt offering makes reparation or restitution for the damage done by the sin. In other words, the sin was kind of a double consequence. Forgiveness and reparation are not the same thing. And the two kinds of sacrifices are meant to deal with each of them respectively. Um, so that basically encompasses the first seven chapters of Leviticus. These are the seven um, or the five offerings that were given to the Lord. And the book of Hebrews mentions that, you know, people could not be sacrificed perfectly sanctified as through Christ except through Christ's one offering right his one sacrifice and the language there speaks and it's very important to note how these offerings would sanctify which would make something that's common holy those that is common and unclean so thus it would also cleanse them but it wouldn't just cleanse them like sort of wipe away um, the sin or cover the sin. It would sanctify them, make them holy. And so uh, if these small offerings in the old covenant did such a thing, how much more should the offering of Christ truly not just cover us, right? Not just wash us in the blood, but truly have an inward change within us. And that's what the uh, book of Hebrews chapters 10 and 11 touches upon. And he uses this language. But we'll, we'll go into that a little more when we get to the section on specifically like going into the different uncommon and clean, clean and common, clean and holy, clean and common, all these different things. Um, and, and what that entails. It, it's good to, to have that in mind um, when going through these sort of different parts of the book of Leviticus. And this will keep going on throughout, you know, the rest of the, the scriptures. This idea of being ritually unclean. Think of how Mary has to take Jesus um, to not just clean or ritually clean herself, but also Jesus. Jesus, who is God, right? He doesn't need to be cleansed, right? He's sinless. He's perfect, right? And likewise, his mom. But... They're following the Jewish laws perfectly. Think of that, the humility in that. They're following the laws perfectly. They are cleaning themselves of their uncleanliness. You know, they're offering those, those offerings back, those sacrifices back to God. Um, and so th that's pretty much it for the first section. We're going to jump into the next section. It's going to be Leviticus chapter 8. This is going to be the ordination of Aaron and his sons. Um, and you'll see also some ordination sacrifices take place. Uh, done by Moses, which is very interesting, and I'll get into that in a bit. But uh, Maxwell, whenever you're ready, uh, ready to read, man, feel free. Understood. Um, 
A reading from the book of uh, Leviticus, chapter 8. Ordination of Aaron and his sons. The Lord said to Moses, Take Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of my presence and bring the priestly garments, the anointing oil, the young bull for the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket of, un of unleavened bread. Then call the whole community to together there. <clears throat> Moses did as the Lord commanded. And when, he, when the community had assembled, he said to them, What am I now about to do with uh, is what the Lord has commanded? Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and had them take a ritual bath. He put the shirt and the robe on Aaron and the sash around his waist. He put the ephod on, <clears throat> on him and fastened it by putting its finely woven belt around his waist. He put the breastpiece on him and put the urim and thummim in it. He placed the turban on his head and on the front of it he put the gold ornament, the sacred sign of dedication, just as the Lord commanded him. The, then Moses took the anointing oil and put it on the tents, tent of the Lord's presence and everything that was in it. In this way he dedicated it all to the Lord. He took some of the oil and it sprinkled it seven times on the altar and its equipment on the basin and its base in order to dedicate them to the Lord. He ordained Aaron by pouring some of the anointing oil on his head. Next, Moses brought the sons of Aaron forward and put shirts on them, put sashes around their waists and tied caps on their heads, just as the Lord had commanded. Then Moses brought the young bull for the sin offering and Aaron and his sons put their hands on its head. Moses killed it and took some of the blood, and with his finger put it on the projections at the corners of the altar, in order to dedicate it. He then poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. In this way, he dedicated and purified it. Moses took all the fat on the internal organs, the best part of the liver, and the kidneys with the fat on them, and burned it all on the altar. He took the rest of the bull, including its skin, flesh, and intestines, and burned it outside the camp, just as the Lord had commanded. Next, Moses brought the ram for the burnt offering, and Aaron, um, and Aaron and his sons put their hands on its head. Moses killed it and threw the blood on all four sides of the altar. He cut the ram in pieces, washed the internal organs and the hind legs with water, and burned the head, the fat, and all the rest of the ram on the altar, just as the Lord had commanded. This burnt offering was a food offering, and its odor was pleasing to the Lord. Then Moses brought the second ram, which was for ordination of priests, and, the, and Aaron and his sons put their hands on its head. Moses killed it and took it, some of the, the blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the right of on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he brought Aaron's sons forward and put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. Moses then threw the rest of the blood on all four sides of the altar. He took the fat, the fat tail, all the fat covering the internal organs, the best part of the liver, the kidney is with the fat on them, and the right hind leg. Then he took one loaf of bread from the basket and, un 
of unleavened bread and dedicated dedicated to the Lord, one loaf of made with oil and one thin cake, and he put them on top of the fat and the right hind leg. He put all the this food in the hands of Aaron and his sons, and they presented it as a special gift to the Lord. Then Moses took the food from from them and burned it on the altar on top of the burnt offering as an ordination offering. This was a food offering, and its odor was pleasing to the Lord. Then Moses took the breast and presented it as a special gift to the Lord. It was Moses' part of the ordination ram. Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded. Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled them on Aaron and his sons and on their clothes. In this way, he consecrated them and their clothes to the Lord. Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Take the meat to the entrance of the tent of the Lord's presence, boil it, and eat it there with the red nez in the basket of ornation offerings, just as the Lord commanded. Burn up any meat or bread that is left over. You shall not leave the entrance of the tent for seven days until your ordination rites are complete. The Lord commanded us to do whatever we have done today in order to take away your sin. You must stay at the entrance of the tent day and night for seven days, doing what the Lord has commanded. If you don't, you will die. This is what the Lord had commanded me. So Aaron and his sons did everything that the Lord had commanded through Moses. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so, again, there's a lot here in this chapter to unpack, which is why I wanted to separate it. Um, so you can see, you know, the ritual. One thing I want to draw on again, God teaches us how to worship him. And this is exactly what he's done here. And notice many times as the Lord commanded Moses to do, you know, he, he did this ritual. Uh, notice also, the sprinkling of the blood on the altar which is supposed to represent God, but also the sprinkling of the blood on Aaron and the priests. That's to represent this sort of covenant. It's to represent this relationship, this bond. And what do they do? Well, they have a feast. Of course, the best part, the fat is offered up to God. And the other stuff is eaten by the priests. And it, says, it even says they're not supposed to leave anything. Um and so it's revolving around this sort of banquet. Think about at mass, how you know it's we we the the priest offers the sacrifice for us, right? Um, and of course, that's Christ offering his sacrifice again, right? In persona Christi, all that. But it's interesting that in that we're offering the sacrifice to God, but we also consume the sacrifice because it's a meal. You know, we're coming together, and that's that's what it is. That's what the mass is. Another thing I want to take note of is recently we had a guest speaker who spoke to us of things that are holy, things that are supposed to be set apart, things that are important. See also here in verse 30, how Aaron and his vestments and the sons and their vestments were both consecrated. What the priest wears, I mean, why do Catholic priests wear funny clothes? Because they're holy, they're consecrated, they're set apart. They're not supposed to look like this world. And so their vestments are also consecrated. They're also holy. They're also set apart. And they play a very important role. And so the guest speaker, he told a story. Or he, he's, he's like freaked everyone out by opening up a Diet Coke and pretending to pour it into one of the, the ciboriums from Mass or a chalice from Mass. And everyone freaked out because they understand like, bro, that's, 
That's a holy, it's a holy cup, it's a holy chalice. I'm not supposed to do that. And so in essence, don't profane what's holy. And so here, you're they're showing, one, the beauty of the liturgy, you know, all, all these things, people who want to read the Bible cover to cover, they usually get bored around Leviticus, you know, because it's all these different ceremonies and rules and stuff, and it gets boring to an extent. But we can see it this way. And you see it through the revelation of Christ. You see it through, you know, what the church is taught. You can see this, the liturgy, very beautifully here. You know, this relationship, this communion with God. That's why it's called communion. When you go up to receive, you're communion with the Lord. You're partaking of your body and blood. And so, uh, the Old Testament is not the fulfillment, right? It's faster than the new. So, if this old covenant, you know, this sign, it was just a symbol, you know, eating with a symbol, eating with a symbol, how much more the new sacrifice, the new meal, be in here, be infinitely more true, not just a symbol of some bread, just like ultimate symbols, but this big true bread came from heaven, as Jesus says in John 6. So, we can see all these things here. Another thing I want to draw on real quick is notice how Moses is doing these things. He sort of serves it like, like some sort of supreme priest, right? Like a, like the high priest. Um, or not even that, because Aaron's the high priest. But he sort of has this eminence among them. And he is the, the Moses, right? So it's really interesting. But I want to show this thread, and we should have that we're in Genesis, but I'm going to tie it now. The thread that we're going to see as we continue through the rest of the Pentateuch is that God never leaves his people without a leader. He never leaves them without some governing head. So think of Adam. Now, you will not find the word covenant in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1 through 3. You won't find that because it's not said explicitly, right? However, through the wordings, through the different um, signs that are shown, it's been implied that Adam was partaking of a covenant. So here's a couple things. Well, first, in 2 Samuel 7, we're going to see the description of the Davidic covenant. And the word covenant isn't even used there either. But everyone will agree that that is a true covenant. Another thing is that in the Pentateuch, the Sabbath is understood as a sign of God's covenant. But... The Sabbath was not established at Mount Sinai. It was established at creation. This suggests that from creation, a covenant is in place. Um, and so one of the earlier prophets, Hosea, compares Israel and Adam, both sons of God, in terms of their breach of covenantal fidelity. You know, they both transgressed God. They both failed God. Um, and he makes this connection there that not only did... Um, Later on, Israel you know, breaks break, break the covenant, you know, the, the global Catholic descendant, but also Adam transgressed the covenant. Um, another thing that's mentioned, uh, the creation narrative understands Adam as a son of God, but not like a natural son. The only alternative would be a covenantal son, okay? Because he's not like, a, like he didn't come like out of God, but he is in this sort of sonship and it has to be a covenantal son. It's the only one that makes sense. One other thing, and this is what I wanted to get to most importantly, the narrative also understands Adam 
as God's vice regent. Okay, but vice regents in the ancient Near East, as it is apparent from numerous extant treaties texts, were regarded as covenantal sons of their father, the emperor, or the great king. So essentially, God is God, right? He leads his kingdom, he rules his kingdom, 100%. But he has people who are their, his sort of vicar, his vice regent here on earth, and it starts primarily with Adam. He has that covenant. You know, the sign of the covenant is, in fact, you know, tying that with um, the Sabbath. And that was not started at Mount Sinai. That was started all the way back um, with Adam. So keeping that in mind, Adam leaves. Israel is, you know, you have the, the rest of the patriarchs come about. You have Noah. You have Noah come about. Abraham sort of leading his family. He's leading, in essence, all that was at the time, the people of Israel. He's offering the sacrifices. It was understood that he was the, the sort of vicar for God in that he was offering this sacrifice of his son. He was preparing to offer that sacrifice. And then you see later on, God establishes Moses as this head. And we see him displaying that perfectly here. Although Aaron is a, is a high priest, right? And then he has the Levitical priesthood, right? Working with them. Moses still holds this, this eminence here. This sort of leadership role, if you would say. This vicar of God here on earth. And you will see this line continue on through the book of Joshua. When in the book of Numbers, we're going to see Moses institute Joshua. Saying almost verbatim, referencing um, Jesus has reinstatement of Peter. We need somebody to tend the sheep of the Lord. Speaking of the people of Israel, we cannot leave them. They will be as a sheep without a shepherd. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Tend my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my, my lambs. All that stuff, reinstating Peter, showing that Peter is his vicar here on earth. And so in a similar sense, Moses is the vicar. He passes that on to Joshua. Joshua leads them into the promised land. They're living in the promised land, and then they have judges. The different judges are these sort of representatives of God here on earth. These prophets. You have Samuel, Samson, and a couple of others. And then you have, finally, they, they want a king. We need a king. And what do they have? David. David and his line. You have you know Saul, David, Solomon, and the line of Davidic kings onward. And they're God's representative here on earth. God is the true king. But these are the, this, is, this is a true, a true king of Israel. And so you can see that here, Moses exercising this, um, this sort of power. One other thing I want to mention, just real quick, the last thing about um, the ordination. Um, so although the English word that is translated is ordination or ordained, um, the Hebrew expression literally means to fill your hands. So what, is, what does this have to do? It is used throughout Jewish scripture uh, whenever a man is ordained as a priest. And so what it essentially means is that the priest's hands are consecrated to offer the sacrifice. As Leviticus itself states when it says a priest... Um, and he presented the cereal offering and filled his hand. This is going to be Leviticus 9. He said he filled his hand, 
from it and burnt it upon the altar. Through the filling of his hands, the priest offers his first sacrifice. So people ask, you know, why do people kiss the priest's hand, the bishop's ring, right? Why do they do that? Well, because they're not worshiping the priest or the bishop or the pope. They're worshiping the office. Or not worshiping, but showing love and veneration for the office. The fact that he is a true priest of the Lord. His hands are holy. His hands are consecrated. They're set apart to offer the sacrifice. And so you can see that very, very present here. And that's, that's what ordination is. And so if you've ever been to a Catholic ordination mass, you'll see some similar um, fulfillment of this. Um, I can't remember exactly what happens. But you will see this displayed through that ordination. It's the consecrating of the priest's hands that's very present there. Um, and oh, one last thing I want to talk about the ordination banquet. I think it's a beautiful type here. It's an ordination banquet of flesh and bread, right? Um, the manna that came down from heaven or will come down. Um, it's going to be manna, bread from heaven, and flesh from heaven. So it's going to be manna and quail. So flesh. So what does Jesus offer us? The true bread of heaven, which is his flesh. So I think it's really cool. And you can see that here in Leviticus 8. Um, but yeah, that's it for Leviticus. Are there any questions as of now? If not, we can just move on. Um, Maxwell, would you be willing to read the psalm? Sure, I could. Uh, um, let me just get the uh, page. Okay. A reading from the Book of Psalm, Chapter Seven. A prayer for justice. O oh Lord, my God. I come to you for protection. Rescue me and save me from all those who pursue me. Or else, like a lion, they will carry me off where no one can save me. And they, there they will tear me to pieces. O oh Lord, my God, if I have wronged anyone, if I have betrayed a friend or without cause done to my, to my enemy, if I, if I have done any of these things, let my enemies pursue me and catch me. Let them put me down and kill me and leave me lifeless on the ground. Rise in your anger, O Lord. Stand up against the fury of my eyes. Rouse yourself and help me. Just as I demand, bring together all the peoples around you and rule over them from above. You are the judge of all people. Judge in my favor, O Lord. You know that I am innocent. You are a righteous God and judge our thoughts and desires. Stop the wickedness of evildoers and reward those who are good. God is my protector. He saves those who obey him. God is a righteous judge and condemns always the wicked. If they do not change their ways, God will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He takes up his deadly weapons and aims his burning arrows. See how wicked people think of evil? They plan trouble and practice deception. 
but in the traps they set for others, they themselves get caught. So they are punished by their own evil and are hurt by their own violence. I thank the Lord for his justice. I sing praises to the Lord from all time. Thank you. Really appreciate that. So, um, as far as this song goes, it's one of the lamenting psalms. You know, we've covered in the past, in the different times, there's the lament psalms. Uh, they're primarily categorized by, you know, physical illness, false accusation, persecution from enemies, and we can see that very clearly here. Um, and, you know, there's sort of different things that go go into that. It's just different descriptions, you know, cry to God, uh, an appeal for judgment on an evildoer, different things like that. There are other psalms that we'll get to later on. The vast majority of the first, what is it, like maybe 40, right? The first 40 psalms are lament psalms with the exception of Psalm 1 and 2. Um, and so the other kind of psalms, just real quick to go over, would be the Thanksgiving psalms. And these psalms are always tied in connection to lament psalms. They're complementary psalms that go together. Um, and so you'll have affirmations of God's grace, God's virtue. Um, you know, they'll speak of the revolution, the resolutions to perform promises. Um, again, you see that get back to Leviticus, so the, you know, righting the wrong, right? Through the sacrifice, but also having that celebratory sacrifice. Um, and then you have other kinds of psalms that are hymns, but these. Uh, are very similar to the praise or thanksgiving psalms. However, their thanksgiving and praise is more general, okay? Um, it's not as specific as the thanksgiving psalms. And you have the royal psalms, which are often uh, messianic psalms, right? Uh, but they speak and focus heavily on, you know, God's power, his fidelity, the person of the king, the son of David, stuff like that. And so you can see that very clearly um, in different ways. And then you have the Mount Zion Psalms, which focus on the glories of the Holy City of Jerusalem, the seat of the Davidic King and the site of the Holy Temple. Um, so it's really awesome there. Just to draw a quick line again. So we have Mount Eden, which Adam, Mount Erat, which would be for Noah, Mount Moira, Abraham, Mount Sinai, Moses, Mount Jerusalem, and Ebal, Joshua, and Mount Zion is what will be for David. So the Davidic covenant um, was, Mount Zion was the place of the revelation of the Davidic covenant, as Mount Sinai was for the Mosaic covenant. Um, and so, you know, it focuses on hopes and dreams of Mount Zion. And so lastly, the reason, you know, this is considered wisdom literature, uh, as we mentioned before, is that the introductions, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, serve as that serve that purpose. Um, but also, uh, prior to the completion of the Psalms, Psalm 1 was, you know, sort of seen as a wisdom psalm. And Psalm 119 almost seemed to sort of sandwich them all in. Um, and so this was with attempt to sort of frame this as, the, as a book of wisdom. And so it is uh, be a book of wisdom because there's a lot of wisdom that's drawn from the Psalms, essentially. With the, the whole idea behind it being that um, fear of God is 
um, where we take wisdom from, you know, that idea of all, um, trying to find the quote exactly. It's something along those lines, essentially, that um, fear of God is the source of all wisdom. There you go. That's it. Um, and so the other kinds of psalms are going to be, you know, messianic psalms. And so those tie into different things. Um, they'll overlap into the Davidic psalm, or not the Davidic, the, the, the priestly, uh, the royal um, the royal psalms will tie into the messianic psalms, but think also of, uh, you know, Psalm 22. It's it's definitely a royal psalm. It's definitely a messianic psalm, but it's also a lamenting psalm. So you have a sort of gray area where a whole bunch of the different genres just tie in. But for this next section, for the first 41 psalms, uh, they will largely be uh, David lamenting. As we can, as we've seen here, but that's virtually it. Um, are there any questions? If not, we can just jump straight to the gospel. All right, for so today we have Luke chapter five. Before we go into that, just a little bit of what we missed from yesterday. Um, Luke chapter four. So we have this temptation of Jesus, right? So this is what happens in chapter 4. And here, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And we know this is a result of the Spirit um, descending on him at his baptism, right? So Jesus is equipped to overcome um, the devil, these temptations, right? Just as the Spirit is prominent at the early stage of Jesus' ministry, if you remember, right? So too it will be... be it will also, right, at this beginning of the period of the church, right, you will see that. And really interesting to point out is the 40 days, right? The, this mention of the 40 days, if we remember the 40 days of the wilderness, the wanderings of the Israelites in Exodus, right, that recalls there. Going further, we have the ministry in Galilee. Jesus starts his um, ministry in Galilee. What's really interesting is that he ends at Jerusalem in the temptation, right? So the devil leads him at leads him to Jerusalem. This is this is where Jesus will ultimately face his destiny, right? Very interesting because Luke kind of orders this, right? The temptations conclude at the temple in Jerusalem, the destiny, right, where Jesus will face his destiny. So then he starts his ministry in Galilee. And we see that news of him spreads. And Jesus begins his ministry. He begins his mission, right? By referring to the Isaiah's prophecy. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the liberty to captives and recover the sight to the blind, to be oppressed, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Right? And Jesus fulfills his prophecy by healing the sick, touching and curing lepers, and spending time with many others whom society devalues and rejects right in this time, as we know. 
Um, and here Jesus has his rejection at Nazareth, right? And going forward, we have the the cure of a demoniac, right? So these these ministries, these several ministries that Jesus has, takes place in Capernaum, and it's based on Luke's sources. We know that Luke is getting these sources from Mark. Um, and so previously, all of this had portrayed Jesus as a prophet. Right now we're seeing that he's a representation of him as a teacher, an exorcist, and healer, um, and proclaimer of God's kingdom. If we see going further, the cure of Simon's mother-in-law and the healings, right? These healings, then they knew, we note here, one of the verses in chapter 4, they knew he was the Messiah. So then, as I mentioned, Luke said, news of him started spreading quickly. And this is kind of a theme here for Luke. Um, and we see that they know that he was the Christ. This news of him starts to spread. So going further, Je Jesus then leaves Capernaum and goes to Judea, which is now he's going to going to Judea. Yeah. So now we're starting chapter five. We have the call of Simon the fisherman. While the crowd was pressing in on Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats there alongside the lake. The fishermen had disembarked and were washing their nets. Getting to, into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, he asked them to put out a short distance from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. After he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon said and replied, Master, I have worked hard all night and have got nothing. But at your command, I will lower the net. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish that the nets were tearing. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. They came and filled the boats so that they were in danger of sinking. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at the knees of Jesus and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For astonishment at the catch of fish they had made, seized him and all those with him. And likewise, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were partners of Simon. Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to the shore, they left everything and followed him. So, what's something we notice about this account in Luke's Gospel? If you remember, it's more detailed than Matthew and Mark, if you remember when we read that, right? And it's important for us to see this as a principle of interpreting the Gospels, right? It's crucial to remember that the Gospels are not comprehensive accounts of everything that Jesus did or everything that he's going to do or he said, right? And even when they're telling us something that Jesus did or said, they don't necessarily tell us everything that took place at that particular moment so if we recall mark's account of a call of peter 
James and John, or even Matthew's account as well, right? It all really says that Jesus went up to them, said, come follow me. They dropped their nets, went off to follow him, right? And it's kind of puzzling, right? Because we wonder, what about this? Why did they just drop everything, right? What was the motivation from departing from their work? What was what was it about Jesus, right? So in a sense, Luke gives us kind of a backstory and helps us fill out one of the reasons why Peter, John, and James would have done that. Jesus doesn't simply call the apostles. He accompanied that call with a miracle. Right? He performed a miracle of this miraculous catch. The miracle that was a motive of credibility. Right? It moved them, helped them to see that this was no ordinary man. He wasn't just some rabbi. And that they were being called through God, through him, right? They were calling, being called by God through him to leave their lifestyle, leave their work behind, become his disciples. So that's a little comparison and contrast there with the other synoptic gospels. It's very helpful to remember this, right? And as a tradition of the church is held, if Luke and John are the last gospels to be written, then it makes sense that these later gospels might fill in some gaps with the earlier Gospels that some readers may have been confused by um, or had questions, right? So with this in mind, we're trying to see what's going on here. Right? There's a couple elements. One with the setting. One element with the setting, right? So it's taking place here, of course, that Simon Peter is a fisherman. And so we're at the lake, and it's called Gudseret, which is... Um, Sea of Galilee, right? So Simon Peter has his boats. They're out on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing. There's multiple boats. And there's two of them here. And we see that J Jesus goes into Simon Peter's boat, right? And he goes out a little from the land and teaches from the boat. And so there's this historical, basic historical significance, right? That the reason Jesus gets into the boat is because the crowds are pressing around him so heavily that he can't teach them like he would like to. Right? They were smothering him, basically. And a way to alleviate that problem would be to get into one of Simon Peter's boats and put out a little bit from the land and just to preach from the people from close to the shore so everyone could hear him, right? It gives him, like, a platform to teach and preach. So that's the historical level. But really on a deeper level, we recognize that Jesus picks Simon's boat to come in precisely because he knows already that he, the role that he is going to play as chief of the apostles, his apostles. And he knows that he's going to cause Simon to be one of his disciples to come follow him. So if we look again at the church fathers, many of them saw a deeper spiritual significance in the fact that Christ teaches from the boat of Simon. We saw this kind of as a mystery or typology, right? Not between the Old and New Testament, but between the ministry of Jesus and the life of the church. Namely, that Simon would be the chief of the apostles, and that the bark, bark is an old word for boat, of Peter would be a symbol of the church, especially the church of Rome, which would hold the successor of Peter, right? through whom Christ would teach the world as chief of the apostles and the supreme head of the church on earth.
right? And in the living tradition, maybe some of us don't know this, we see that the bark of Peter, this boat, it gets used as an image to describe the church, right? And it comes from here, Luke chapter 5, with the image of Christ teaching from not just any boat, but from Simon's boat in particular. And so what's interesting here that happens on a human level, we're going to be talking about this human level, is the exchange between Jesus and Peter. So he's a fisherman, right? And fishermen can be particular about their skills, their methods, where they like to go, their locations, um, the spots they like to choose. If any of us know about fishing, um, it kind of goes like that, right? And so, Simon is a professional fisherman. It might not come super clearly or shine through here, but it's important to notice. And he's got partners, multiple boats, and we know from Mark's gospel that James and John, their father Zebedee, has hired servants to work the boats. So this is a fishing business, right? They're not just peasants who have nothing to do better than fish. They're professionals and they know what they're doing. And Jesus, by contrast, is a tecton. That's a Greek word for carpenter, builder, right? So fishers, fishermen, don't really like someone who's not a fisherman to tell them how to fish. And so when Jesus gets in the boat after teaching, he tells them, put out to the deep and let your nets down, catch. So here's kind of a test taking place, right? Because Simon tells him, Master, and long we and so you know that been out on that long fishing. Something frequently in the Gospels, right? Fishing, right? It was a bountiful way to fish for the fish during the night. So they fish all through the night and after morning. So we can probably imagine that Peter's probably tired, especially from not having caught in fish. And Jesus, the name's along. Don't try the deep water, you know, and go see what happens over there. So, this is test here. Is Peter going to do anything? Which would be, I know I'm doing, I fold. I give up now, right? And again, if anyone knows anything about fishing that has fish, like, it's not ideal to be fishing around a lot of noise. We have to be very quiet to wait. Right? And Jesus is preaching, there's crowds, there's noise, so it's not the ideal setting. And yet, what does Peter say? He says, At your word, I will let the nets. So here, Peter manifests the virtue of humility to Christ. Again, on this human level, Peter is the expert, Jesus is the non expert, but he says later to him, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. And he's putting himself in submission to Jesus. He recognizes his unworthiness in the presence of Jesus. We believe him. Humility and obedience are these two virtues Peter shows in this. It's very important, right? In the story of his call. So they go out and they let out, they, they let down the nets. They don't just catch fish, they catch a great shoal of fish, right? They catch so many that the nets are breaking. They call their partners for help. And when they fill both of the boats, there's so much fish that the boats are sinking. And so it's a super abundant catch. 
It's miraculous. It's inexplicable. They've been fishing all night and they haven't caught a single thing. Now Jesus turns everything around. He makes it super abundant that the boats are starting to sink. And so when Simon sees this happening, he recognizes that this is supernatural. He recognizes this is a miracle. He recognizes that only God can make something like this happen. And in the face of a miracle, Peter is struck with awe, with this fear, right? And we've talked about this so much, this tremendum, you know, he often responds with fear, trembling, as we see over again in the Old Testament, as the Gospels, we've seen this. Again, I keep talking about this, the experience of the numinous, right? We are in front of God's presence. That's how you respond, right? And because in, in presence of God, we recognize our own unworthiness, our own powerlessness, our own sinfulness, right? That's what Peter says here, these powerful words. But he says, but Simon Peter, when he saw this, fell down to Jesus, saying, to me, I am sinful man, Lord. And the Greek here is Greek. Lord or Master, it is the term that's used for Master, but it can also be referred to as a key as well. He's the Lord. In the New and the Old Testament, it's used for going to refer to God. Right? It's a translation the Hebrew word, away, um, for away. So, what exactly do you mean? We know this is here, and he recognizes that Jesus has some kind of divine power, that he is the Lord come person, right? He probably doesn't fully understand this, but he recognizes that it just happens without of God. And so he doesn't even want to come close to you. He's, remember, he's fully, he's a man, partner. Right. Then Peter says, Depart from me, because I am a sinful. And we'll this over again. We have the testament. Unlike modern people, our culture inclines us to that sin a big deal that it doesn't matter. But in the old sense, we're not bringing anything to God. We are not here to do So it's dangerous to hear. Like we talk about so, so Peter says, "Go away, sinful man." And what's the whole is that Peter, first of all, he says, "Don't correct him." Didn't do that. It's Peter's declaration of his sins, but that doesn't stop him from calling him Jesus. Don't do that. You will be man. So, sometimes people often wonder, what is Peter saying? What, is, what does he mean, I'm a simple man? If we look at the Gospels, when we see the time actually, it means kind of a person, like the case, like, um, maybe other things, uh, um, there will be public centers, um, something where the person lives. Right. It doesn't seem to be that case. Um, he's gonna 
has a shadow. What is this? But there's no evidence right that he But what's interesting is this open. What's up joined in that open? Right? Another word you can see in the dirt. Because they're all simple. What it being Jesus. And yet, this what he causes them to his life to be with him. Right? In this case, to be the chief of apostles. So he says, you can which shows not just ancient church fathers who have something to the life of the church, but that Jesus himself to those who people exactly his It's not really a vision that it's going to be open to a multitude of souls and bring them of God. So we think about um, we remember the whole thing about him. The gene pairs you give them to a dragon that gives him for so it's what it's going to be possible. But he's wishing for you to be there. And that brings to why when they get some land and get them. I would know myself how to stuff, but go ahead and read it. Of Tabitha. Now, there was a proceed down where he was, he said, he thought he'd leave with this. If you wait, you can just touch him to do. Be. I mean, let's see what I mean. Then he ordered not anyone but so he priest offer for your one who's got that be priest. about more than proud of them of their own. When she says, of law, we are sitting there in every building. They are interested in the power of the Lord and for healing. And then, while on the dresser, a man who heard this, they were trying to bring in and see him and not finding a way to bring him in. This is the Lord is sure to be told in the middle and in the face. He has you, your sins are forgiven. Then I received that. So, who is this creepy? Who, but God alone, can forgive sins? Jesus knew his thoughts and said to them, Reply, What are you thinking in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your stretcher, and go home. He immediately he 
almost immediately before them, picked up what he was lying on, and went home, glorifying God. Then astonishment seized them all, and they were glorified. And they glorified God and struck with all. We have, been, we have seen incredible things today. The call of Levi. After this, they went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the customs post. He said to them, He said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything behind, he got up and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. The large crowd, tax collectors, and others were at a table with him. The Pharisees and the scribes complained to the disciples, saying, What do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said to them in private, Those who are healthy do not need a physician, but the sick do. I have not come to call the righteous to, to repentance, but sinners. The question about fast. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast, and the disciples of Pharisees do the same. But yours drink. He gets fat, bridegroom is with them, but the bridegroom is They will the day. He offered them parable. No one needs from a new cloak to patch peace front will not match the old cloak. Likewise, no one pours new wine to old wine skins, otherwise the new wine version of the skins and will be spilled. No one will be moved. Rather, new wine be poured into fresh wine skins. And no one who has in drinking old wine desires the old is good. So we see here Again, Luke from his Martin source, using Mark, introduces serious controversy, controversy over Jesus' power to forgive sin over eating, drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Um, controversy over fashion of each son. Um, it's a point to highlight. Here, um, the it's very easy for us to the Last right. And he said, what do you think in your heart? Which is easiest to forgive him or to rise and walk? Right? And he has his authority, he's the son of Adam. It's clear for us to see us to believe. Like how Mary was praised for um, just being the mother of God and why that's beautiful. It's also her immaculate conception, right? She has no sin. He's 
Mr. Clinton. And yeah, but he's saying it. So faith, that's that's it, right? It's so much easier for us to see these outward signs, but remember what's inside our faith first, right? Then we go on to the question of that. And if he really is the Messiah, he is Christ, he is God, why would we fast till he is with us? Right? That's what he's saying here. Um, Kylie's everything. If you're still um, doing these old things, but you have something new with you. He's saying with this group, if you're patching an old one, Ruins the cloak, and within the old wine, skin. if you pour this new one into the old one's skin, you tear it. You burst the skins, and you ruin the you ruin the wine. So, I think, and of course, he says there be, there will come time that the person is taking the then um sent it right. So very beautiful, um, about Jesus being the bridegroom, um, and this heavenly banquet with him in It's pretty much all there. Um, anyone has any questions? Very well over time a bit. Um, I don't want to change anything to this.